Bonjour, bienvenue, and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to you from Paris, and this week we have a guest who will be talking with us about how you can avoid and beat what has been named by the World Health Organization as a global epidemic. No, we aren't talking about the global pandemic COVID-19. We're talking about burnout. And my guest is Bronwyn Sciortino, an internationally renowned author, simplicity expert and professional speaker. Bronwyn spent almost two decades as a high-powered, award-winning executive until she herself experienced burnout and spent three years recovering before she decided to change her career path after realising there was more to life than hustling and struggle. Bronwyn now spends every day teaching people there are other ways to live so they can reduce stress, build resilience and make changes to have a more meaningful life and to strengthen their mental and physical health and well-being. But before we hear from Bronwyn, I have a track for you which is all about the topic we'll be discussing, which is by Australian rapper Iggy Azalea. It's called Work and it's from her 2014 debut album, The New Classic. So enjoy this spaceship to Mercury of a tune and we'll be back with Bronwyn next. Walk a mile in these Louboutins. But they don't wear these shit where I'm from. I'm not hating, I'm just telling you. I'm trying to let you know what the that I've been through. Two feet in a red dirt, school skirt, sugar cane, back lane. Three job took years to save. But I got a ticket on that plane. People got a lot to say, but don't know a thing about where I was made. Or how many floors that I had to scrub just to make it past where I am from. No, no, no money, no family. They're rich, I've been work, 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 working on my sh milk the whole game twice. Gotta get it how I live. I've been work, 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 working on my sh now get this work. Hustling the struggle is the only thing I'm trusting. Throw a bread in a mud brick before the budget. White chick on a pack did. My passion was ironic and my dreams were uncommon. Guess I gone crazy. First deal changed me. Rob line basically rape me. Most of the book like a matador. Just made me matter and animate to go at him and even a skull. So I went harder. Studied the card till the deal was offered. Slept cold on the floor recording at four in the morning. And now I'm passing the bar like a liar. Immigrant or ignorant. Your ill intent was insurance for my benefit. Hate to be inconsiderate, but the industry took my innocence. Too late now I'm in this bitch. You, you, you don't know the This Valley girls give him for Louboutins. What you call that? Head over heels. <laughs> no, 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 no money, no family. 16 in the middle of Miami, no money. 
I've been work, 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 working on my Milk the whole game twice. Gotta get it how I live. I've been work, 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 working on my Now get this work. Ain't been easy, but she's the peasy for the weeks we lived out in Dublin. Bags is all we had doing, and thank for my mama love you. One day I'll pay you back for the sacrifice that you managed to muscle. Sixteen, you sent me the customs. So, all aboard my spaceship to Mercury. Turn first satellite that's in front of me. Cause every night I'ma do it like it's my last. This dream is all that I need, cause it's all that I ever had. Now get this work. So welcome, Bronwyn, to Feminist Fridays. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about you and your growing up and what your aspirations and dreams were. You've stated that you're a classic overachiever. Is this a trait that you think you were born with or did you acquire it at a certain time? And I ask this because, like you, I'm a self-professed overachiever and I think it's something that I've always had within me, academically, professionally, in the way that I present myself and in the way that I constantly juggle multiple initiatives in my life. Has your journey been similar? Yeah, I think uh, that's such a great question because it really gets you thinking about, you know, is there a time when you haven't had this, you know, this overachiever, this, you know, this almost drive to succeed in built? Uh, and, uh, you know, I can't really think about a time when it wasn't this way. I feel like it's just always been part of who I am Um, and I think growing Mm. up uh, you know that could be quite tricky because there's so many different aspects of life where it was just natural to really succeed and to be so good at things Uh, and Mm. sometimes that was quite difficult for other people to cope with Uh, and so pressure comes in from people um, saying things like, oh, it's not fair, you got picked again or those sorts of things. And so you start to have the battle between, uh, you know, really just naturally falling into being good at things and trying not to be too good so that you don't get ostracised for it. So you've mentioned I've done my own psychological work to get help with anxiety and depression and I know that I have a perfectionist trait and this can be useful in many ways because I'm highly motivated but it can also be a burden because as one of my best friends says I can be my own worst enemy when I worry when I haven't done something perfectly. Would you identify with being a perfectionist as well? 
Yeah, so um, my first book is called Keep It Super Simple, Tips from a Recovering Perfectionist. So uh-huh. <laughs> absolutely I identify with that perfection trait. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, it wasn't so much anxiety and depression that were the results of that. For me, it was that real burnout and exhaustion. Uh, yeah, sure. um, and either way, you know, that perfection trait is really driven through stress. And mm. stress, depending on, you know, you as a unique individual can impact in very different ways. So, you know, as you've seen, it's the anxiety and the depression that has probably been fueled by the stress of perfectionism. Mine was you know, the burnout and the exhaustion uh, and, you know, literally the ability to, uh, you know, like I broke and so then it became the ability to actually move forward was severely hampered. Can you tell us more about that and what kind of corporate sector were you working in? And did that pressure to perform come from within or was it external or was it both? Yeah, so for me, uh, I was in the funds management of the financial services industry, Mm, uh, which is full on. But the pressure for me really came from, uh, for me, being driven in every aspect of life uh, mm-hmm. to really be everything to everyone in every moment, uh, covering every base, uh, and and at the same time trying to hold up the facade that everything in my life was amazing and everything was perfect. Uh, and, you know, it, it, the analogy of you know, the duck on the water just, you know, gliding blissfully, blissfully along and then the, under the water where nobody can see, the feet are just paddling madly to maintain that, you know, facade that everything's amazing. Uh, So it was the combination of those two things for me. Um, And I spent over 12 years existing on two very, very disturbed hours of sleep a night because I was just, I was, you know, I was just so stressed about everything I had to do and all the responsibilities that I had and all of the things that I'd committed to for everybody else and trying to make make my life look like it was just so effortless at the same time. So, you know, I was completely exhausted, completely drained, and I had no understanding at all about the role that stress plays in life and what it is actually doing to us physically, emotionally and psychologically. Uh, Mm. And, you know, I think we all know that stress is not good for us. We also um, just push that to the side under the under the heading of stress is normal and without stress you can't be successful. Uh, you know, so for me it was the combination of those things that saw me in a situation where, uh, you know, I ended up with um, cancer on my head uh, and I was told that in, in the space of, you know, 20 seconds it went from it's not psoriasis, it's not like a skin condition, is cancer, you're going to need plastic surgery. Uh, That sort of diagnosis changed in 20 seconds. Uh, And instead of stopping at that point and saying, okay, something's not right, what I did was went into this mode of I can't believe this, how am I going to fit this in, my schedule's jam-packed looking after everybody else, I don't have time for this. Uh, So I literally gave myself half a day to have six centimetres of my head cut out. Uh, and I was back on my laptop that afternoon after surgery, bandage stapled to my head, 
the king looking after everybody else's problems again. Uh, and three days later, or three or four days later, I went back to the surgeon for my post-op checkup, uh, and they've taken all the bandages and everything off, and for the first time I actually saw the wound. And it was like a quarter of my head was missing uh, in the reflection that I got back in the mirror, and the shock that I got when I saw that reflection completely shattered my life. It just was like it flipped me into a completely different reality life shattered in that moment and it was like I was in a million pieces on the floor around me. Um, you know, so as you said, I literally went from an award-winning executive on the floor, unable to cope in the basics of life and unable to stop crying in less than a minute. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with a good old cry. <laughs> so... <laughs> no, that, you're absolutely right. But for me, what that triggered was I experienced my entire lifetime's emotion in two years. You know, if you have a broken ankle, generally the recovery and the treatment is the same for everyone. Mm. But mental health is such a personal journey. It's so different for everyone. And often, like, one of the things that I found, especially in the, in the early stages, was I couldn't understand what was going on, so I couldn't explain what was going on to anybody else. It, it made it very difficult to try and communicate to people around me what, what, what I was actually experiencing. So, again, that created challenges because people just go, oh, well, this is what's wrong with you and here's, what's, here's what fixes that for you. And often that was so far off the mark and it just felt so isolating and lonely mm-hmm. uh, and also like you're letting everybody down around you because you just literally can't do what they're telling you to do, you know, to fix yourself. I wanted to ask, you, you did mention already that, so you were, you were diagnosed with a, brain cancer so is that where where did you when you realized that there was not something quite right where did you initially turn to for help was it this uh this particular surgeon or was it a gp or who did you first reach out to yeah so mine wasn't brain cancer it was a skin cancer that was on my head Yeah, Uh, and when they actually got the tumour out, there was four different strains of cancer in it. So it was it was really unusual, uh, and it was it was a type of cancer that if it had been left untreated, it would have eventually eaten the entire side of my face. It sort of just you know eats its way across the skin. So it wasn't it wasn't actually a skin cancer. Um, For me, it was about – sorry, it wasn't a brain cancer, it was a skin cancer. Uh, For me, in terms of help, um, when I first received the shock, I was literally in the surgeon's um, offices. Uh, When I I went home and then I literally just went into this void where I couldn't deal with anyone, I couldn't really talk to anyone – and, you know, my phone, the texts were going, the phone was ringing, you know, the social media stuff, whatever, and I just was completely oblivious to all of it. Except for one phone call that came through and for some reason I picked it up and it happened to be um, a, a friend who uh, had had uh, her sister worked in a hospital who knew somebody else in the hospital and they got me into work with a counsellor who specialised in different emotional disturbances in cancer patients. So it was just one of those universal, you know, the universe provides. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was just, you know, I picked up the phone when I'd, you know, been oblivious to everything else and it just set in train um, the, the process. 
of me stepping into a counselling environment. Um, and then from there I moved to a clinical psychologist and, and also stepped into working with an energy medicine professional as well. As it was the combination of the three professionals that I worked with that really, you know, helped me turn my life around, rebuild and step out in a different way. What an amazing it's it's great that you took that phone call and mm. you got you got that help that you needed because we all need to to understand that asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. So you've also said that it took two further years of personal work to get back to being able to survive in the basics of life and a further 12 months of this to get your life moving forwards again. Um, So what kind of work were you doing? Um, And you have described it as intensive, overwhelming and invasive. And I was initially a bit concerned about this language because to me, I think it might put people off asking for help when they need it because, sure, seeking help, can seem hard initially but it can also be extremely rewarding therapeutic relaxing fun and in my opinion any good practitioner be they a therapist clinical psychologist or someone else should not take an invasive approach so this sent alarm bells off for me immediately are you able to explain a little bit more about about this yeah so for for me uh, you know, I was I was broken. I was literally broken into a million pieces on the floor around me. I was so so broken uh, because I'd pushed myself so hard for so long that it, it was almost like my mind and body got together, collaborated, and said, "That's it. Stop and stop with such a force that you can't get back up again until you actually repiece repiece together your life." in a way that's going to be so much kinder and so much you know, more loving and easy to live for you. Um, and, you know, the overwhelming, invasive and intensive work, I use that language deliberately because recovering, you know, re- rebuilding my life and recovering to the point where I could actually step forward and go another direction was easily the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, yeah. And it was overwhelming and the process was invasive and it was intensive. Uh, and I really want people to understand that, you know, what I learned through that process is that you know, all the things that I had taken on board as being truths about life, the things like you, you can't, you're not allowed to change until you've had a traumatic event. Um, change is hard, so don't go there. You know, um, you have to do what you're told. You've got to tick the boxes to get ahead. You can't be successful unless you're stressed. All of these, you know, things I had accepted as absolute truths in life. And what I learned through my recovery process as I really started to research stress and exhaustion and burnout and mindfulness and resilience and all of these buzzwords that we've got in our life right now is that those truths are absolute myths. Uh, and there's, there was absolutely no need for me to go to the point that I went to. There were so many things that I could have done so simply to do things in a really different way that would have significantly changed my life. 
So I deliberately use that wording because I really want to wake people up that they don't have to go there. They don't need to literally claw their way back to a point where they can exist in the basics of life and have it take two years. Um, you know, because when, and when I'm talking about invasive and intensive, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about the process that the professionals I worked with used with me. I'm talking about the process that I had to go through dealing with myself and the way that I spoke to myself and the way that I was living my life and the way I was pushing myself. I had to reformat all of that because it was so harsh and it was so critical and it, it was you know, so counterintuitive to who I am as an individual and to the way that I naturally live my life. Now, uh, you know, so and I, I find a lot when I'm talking to people that they really relate to that, um, you know, that, that, that being their own harshest critic and to being the driving force behind their life and to not being good enough and to, to pushing their life because of that. So that's where that language comes from rather than process that the professionals are using to get you mm, to yeah. understand things and open up your life in a different way. So you have said that the next thing you did after recovering for three years was to write a book and you've since written three about the topics of simplifying your life, battling burnout and beating stress. And you are also invited to deliver keynote speeches, run corporate programs, workshops, retreats and individual leadership programs globally. So I'd like to congratulate you on these amazing achievements and their reception. But after reading your bio, it sounds as though you went from being an overachiever in one area of your life or career path to being an overachiever in another. What hmm. practical changes did you actually make to your life? And, you know, from experiencing mental challenges and illness myself, I know it's an ongoing process. Just like I've, I've learned to manage my anxiety and perfectionism, it's something I always need to check in with myself on. Um, so, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so the, my first book, which is Keep It Super Simple, that was actually written during my recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that came out of the counselling work I was doing was that I was terrified of writing anything personal down. Mm-hmm. I was terrified of it because I had set up this belief that if I wrote anything personal down, somebody would be able to use it against me as evidence that I wasn't perfect. So I'd set up this incredibly complex spiral where I just sat in this absolute terror of writing the pencil down. And you would know that when you're in that counselling environment, when they come up, when when something like that comes to the surface, it becomes homework. They they find a way for you to step into that in a way that can help you to move through it. Uh, So journaling became part of my homework. Uh, and mm. it was around about the same time that I started putting my toe into the water to go back into social situations to re- really try and get back to connecting with 
society generally because I just couldn't cope with anybody around me. I literally couldn't cope with anything other than the basics in life. Yeah. And uh, one of the few things that I could actually talk about in those social situations without completely dissolving into tears over almost nothing was journaling. And mm. as I was talking about journaling, people started asking me what it was I was writing about. And as I started talking to them about some of the topics, I started saying, you have to turn this into a book. You have to write this book. People need this. The world needs this. You know, so many people are struggling with this. And of course, I was still really fragile and really broken still. And so that was, that was an enormous thing to be hearing from people around me because I just wasn't ready to even contemplate what future might look like. I was, you know, still well into the beginnings of recovery process. But what mm-hmm. that did was sort of spark a seed or plant a seed. It gave me something to come back to the, to the middle of the pendulum because I'd gone from having every minute, every second of every minute, highly scheduled and highly, you know, diarised mm. uh, to the opposite where, you know, when you drop every ball that you're juggling in the air and you're not in the, any fit state to be able to pick any of them up again, Suddenly you have, you know, no appointments, no, nobody's relying on you for anything. There's nothing you have to deliver. There's nothing to focus on except for yourself. Uh, you know, mm. so uh, everything was unscheduled. There was nothing that was, you know, surrounded about time or any of that sort of stuff. And so writing gave me this beautiful ability to have something that came back to the middle of the pendulum where I had something to focus on, something to do, something to look at. Uh, and I could actually create a little bit of a schedule around it and say, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put it in the diary to write today. But, you know, there was no pressure around that because if I couldn't do that for some reason, then there was nobody relying on it. So there was no real pressure around it. Yeah. It became a real therapeutic uh, recovery style activity. Mm. And from that, my first book was written. As that went into the world, people started saying, like, you know, this is amazing. This is incredible how else can we work with you? Can you come and do a workshop? Can you do a keynote? Can you do this? Can you do that? Uh, and so, um, you know, looking back on that now, I, I sort of look at that and I just go, you know, I almost accidentally became an entrepreneur, uh, you know, uh, because all of a sudden I had this business with all these things that people wanted me to do for them. And I needed to create a process and a platform and a structure for my life that allowed me to do that whilst still actually really looking after myself within that. And so then I started to really explore and understand, you know, energy within our bodies and and being able to actually manage our energy and understand our energy and who am I as a unique individual and how am I made up and how does my energy flow through the day and how do I um, how do I connect and understand the activities that help me to refuel my energy every day so that I've got the energy I need, um, you know, to be refueled all the time, but also to be able to help other people. Uh, and so that's when the Keep It Super Simple principles were born. And I use those every day, uh, you know, and I set every day up on the things that I need to refuel before I even start the day. And that way I'm fully fueled and, uh, you know, I know what I need to do, what, what I need to um, provide, how I'm going to do that. And I really, really 
closely monitor my diary and because I'm working globally now, you know, sometimes it's two in the morning when I'm up and I'm you know, um, doing global think tanks with people in the US and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I'm really closely monitoring what I'm doing during the day and how I'm doing that and, uh, and making sure that things aren't overloaded. And basically what I do, I just do it in a way that it works for me, uh, make sure that I'm okay my energy levels are looked after. I've got the things in my life that, you know, really support my health and well-being. And really, you know, I've just basically set it up so that I can be healthy, happy and highly successful. I don't have to choose between them anymore. So I wanted to also turn to the topic of burnout on a global scale because it has been named, as you've mentioned, by the World Health Organization as a global epidemic. And is, you know, a really hot topic for conventions and conferences. Um, but for most people, you know, I think it's very overwhelming and they don't know where to start. And um, I think, you know, in today's world, I'm sure COVID-19 has exacerbated people's experience of burnout because. Mm. You know, people are just isolated. They're not coping mentally. We've had our many people have had their lives flattened in various ways. Mm. Um, I just also wanted to go on by saying you've also mentioned that you know we're constantly bombarded by information, mm. which is a key factor. But another, or well, there are two other issues that concern me, which. I believe, are often experienced by women. Um, we're bombarded by messages through pop culture and celebrities mm. that tell us to work or work, bitch, or work out, you know. And, you know, I think that's another big driver. And the other issue is the fact that in most societies, including Australia, women do by far more unpaid work on top of their professional work than men. Now this, you know, I'm this is a generalization. There are certainly men who share the workload, but it's overwhelmingly the statistics indicate that women in many societies do much more unpaid work on top of having to earn a living. What I'm asking is you know, what do you think are some of the factors that are making burnout such a pervasive issue on a global scale? I think, um, you know, the World Health Organization came out at the end of May last year, so a little over 12 months ago, mm -hmm. and directly linked workplace stress to burnout. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did that through changing the definition that they had within their disease and illness handbook. Right. Uh, and so that seemed to be the first, not only was the definition changed, but it seemed to be the first time that a significant body in the world has come out and basically seemed to say that, uh, uh, I guess, uh, dealing with and changing the burnout and uh, stress statistics is the responsibility of the organisation. 
and ultimately what they've done is they've created a pathway for this to now be acknowledged within insurance companies and all sorts of things for workers' compensation and, and income protection insurance and, and uh, those sorts of things so that it makes it easier for somebody who's actually suffering with these things to actually get financial assistance to it, to, mm -hmm. to be able to take the time out to actually recover from it. So ultimately, them coming out and, and saying what they've, say, what they've said doesn't really affect you unless you actually uh, are burnt out completely and diagnosed with burnout. It opens the door for a doctor to have an avenue to actually uh, diagnose burnout as uh, a condition. Uh, you know, because previously that, that avenue wasn't there. I think that's the first thing to understand with the World Health Organization. But secondly, the seeming placement of responsibility on organizations is an interesting one for me because a lot of the um, training and, and uh, you know, resources that are available for organizations are group focused. Uh, and, you know, as you and I know, Sarah, you know, the, the whole mental health experience is so individual. It is such a personal thing. We have so mm. many things within our life that create you know, the pressures that, that then go on to form, you know, the basis of that mental health picture for us as an individual. Group training doesn't address, doesn't actually address the issue at the individual level. So, uh, you know, that's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that stress is not just caused by the workplace. Stress is actually caused by so many different avenues in our life. And, and again, as unique individuals, we'll have different combinations of stressors that go mm. together to actually really create that sort of stress bomb, if you like. Um, but the pressure that stress brings into our life create such an impact physically, emotionally, and psychologically. And together, those things then put pressure on the ability to sleep, which then creates exhaustion factors. It's the combination of these things that push the system into a burnout phase. So it's really about understanding all of those things and the combination of those things, and then being able to actually find the tools and the resources that allow you as a unique individual to find your answers because you're absolutely right with the pop culture and all of those sorts of things. But then with COVID-19, everybody's been forced into the online environment. Yeah. Uh, and what the, I think the statistics are that about people are spending about 70% more time in the online environment than they were before. Yeah. You've got every business is in the online environment now. Mm. Every one of those businesses is saying, this is what you have to do and this is how you have to do it. It's mm. everything from this is what you can and can't do in a Zoom meeting. This is what you should and shouldn't eat. This is how you should and shouldn't exercise. This is what time your alarm should go off. This is, you know, how you, how you should set up your day. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do your washing. You shouldn't do your cooking. You should, you know, actually the reality is the only should that come in, you know, should come into your day is a combination of things that's absolutely right for you. That's what you should be doing. I'm a big believer in not using the word should, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's so invasive, right? Yeah, no, I, I don't should. I never should myself and I never should anyone else. 
would you agree with me that, you know, the fact that women do a lot of unpaid work is a key factor as well in, in terms of burnout? Yeah, but I also think that the, that, that comes from um, women and it's so much harder to say no. Mm. Uh, and they feel that, you, I mean, we're trained from a very young age that community is everything and mm. that you have to step up and you've got to do your bit within community. How mm. that actually manifests is that you, women tend to get into a situation where if I don't do this, no one else will, and therefore the whole thing falls over and I'm not going to be responsible for that. Actually, you know, the reality is that if you step back from something, somebody else will step in. It's just the nature of how it works. Uh, you know, so it's so important to understand the things that are really important to you in your life, connect to those, and then when you're doing those things, you're just naturally refueling your energy anyway. Okay. So you've mentioned understanding the things that are important in your life. Um, as this is a, a segment and a podcast that has a predominantly youth-focused audience, can you provide, simplify, in your own words, your maybe your top three tips for simplifying your life or building resilience against burnout? Firstly, if you've got no finances and you can't afford to buy a book or anything like that, head to my website. There's a free seven-part email series that can actually get you started uh, and you don't have to do anything for that. There's, I don't believe in you have to buy something to get something free. It is absolutely 100% free. So absolutely go and, and get hold of that. The top three tips are really, uh, you know, Start to really think about the things that you really connect with. What are the things, you know, the places, the people, the activities, what are they? And you come away from them, you're just smiling and your whole system, you just feel alive. Start to identify with those because those are the things that are refueling you um, and they're the things that, you know, really is feeding the energy within your system. And when you're energised, you're less likely to be exhausted. Um, the second thing is once you know what those activities, those peoples, those places are, start to work out how you can how you can spend more time with those things uh, and, and start to really have a look in your diary and plan those things in so that you're regularly giving them to you. Um, you know, I talked before about how I set up every day for myself on things that give myself energy. That's non-negotiable mm. time for me. You know, mm. absolutely really take that seriously and give that to yourself. And the third thing I would say is really start to ask the question, what if they're wrong? Uh, because if you can start to ask that question, you can start to really challenge the things that people say to you. Anytime you hear should, you need to, you have to, um, those sorts of things, really start to train yourself to go, hang on a minute, what if they're wrong? What if that's not right for me? What is, you know, what is my direction? Um, anytime you can put a question in between those sorts of things that are being thrown at you, you'll start to really consciously connect with what's right for you. Great to hear. Thank you. It's great that you have some free resources. I think we're going to have to wrap up. But before we do, Bronwyn, I just wanted to ask you, where can people, our listeners, find you? 
um, please um, share your website, your social media handles, anything else you want to plug here. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. And um, pretty much all just under my name, Bronwyn Shortino. Um, Facebook and, and Instagram are Bronwyn Shortino Author. Uh, okay. And the website is www.sheeklife.com, which is S-H-E-I-Q-L-I-F-E.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your experience it's been wonderful and i you know i'm very grateful so um, Sarah, thank you it's been fantastic thank you and au revoir. Yeah, au revoir well that is another episode of feminist fridays for this week but before we wind up i'd like to laser beam you with a cult classic 80s track by frankie goes to hollywood that's right it's relaxed and this is the 2009 lockout mix. So make sure you relax this weekend, although don't stop dreaming those dreams or use a laser beam if you can find one. And be sure to tune in next week for another Kick-Ass Feminist Friday segment.